Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Today is Ravi's 38th birthday. And he is really acting like that's a really big deal when I turn 40 in six days. But still, uh, we are very excited for Ravi's birthday. Happy birthday, Ravi. There is a protest happening outside your apartment at this moment. Yeah, and, you know, I'd like to think that they're protesting uh, the hands of time doing their work on me. But I actually think it's uh, a group of Chinatown activists and some good friends of mine who are, you know, calling some attention to some of the hardship that's been happening out here uh, over the past year. And, and shout out to Chris Marte, who's a local candidate for city council here, who uh, I can hear on his megaphone out there stirring up the crowd. But we have a busy week of news, Jason, and so I want to get right to it. Tragically, uh, India is dealing with a massive, massive crisis right now. Overwhelmed hospitals have been the worst case COVID scenario for most nations. But this is horror on another scale entirely. These are some of the most distressing scenes we've witnessed during the course of our reporting. And this isn't even a hospital. It's a Sikh temple where they're just helping out with oxygen and basic care. And the, it's so hot that the volunteers cannot even wear their PPEs. And people just keep coming and coming and coming. And there's just no room at any of the local hospitals for the people who are here. They had a delayed second wave of their uh, of the of the COVID pandemic. And they've logged more than 300,000 official cases for the seventh consecutive day today, uh, with a total cumulative caseload past 17 million. Um, and this, you know, today, Wednesday, they had 3,300 deaths uh, and now exceed 200,000 official deaths since the pandemic began. And a lot of public health experts think that um, caseloads in India are 10 times what's reported because their testing regime uh, is not very tight. And so we could be talking about millions of new cases every single day, and it's growing exponentially. This has the potential to be one of the worst humanitarian crises, if not the worst, in our lifetime. The global community is rushing, including the United States, to try to get as many supplies and as much aid as possible to India. It's it's really hard to imagine this thing slowing down anytime soon. Jason, what does this mean for our our global community and for us as Americans to see the largest country in the world, you know, first or second largest, depending on the stats, uh, with more poor people probably than anywhere else on the planet descending into such tragedy right now? Well, I was 
pleasantly surprised, which maybe is a weird way to put it, but to see this on the front page of the Kansas City Star this morning, because up until up until today, I felt like this has been a, a back burner of an issue for Americans. There's something they're not really taking notice of, which actually, in thinking about it, it is a lot like when uh, the coronavirus began in China, the early part of last year to the very end of, of 2019, where it's just this thing happening on the other side of the world uh, with a country that the vast majority of Americans have never been to. And many of us uh, probably, you know, I don't know what percentage of Americans can pick India out on a map, but it is a good thing that it is now uh, becoming front page news. I think it's largely because Americans can actually understand and relate to what's happening because of what we've been through in the last year. Um, and so maybe that is a positive step in the right direction. Uh, and it, to me, it's the neighborhood analogy, you know, because I think we're about to have a big debate in this country about vaccine diplomacy and about foreign aid. We have that every, every few years. And it's just about the fact that like, if, if your neighbor's house is on fire and you have the ability to do something about it, obviously you should, particularly if your house had been on fire a few months ago and your neighbor did something about it. And if you don't do something about it, all of your other neighbors are gonna see that. And that's gonna affect your relationship with your other neighbors. So I think it's really simple from a practical standpoint, but also, you know, we're an extremely wealthy country who for a change is doing uh, really well in terms of treating this pandemic, like with vaccine production and, and vaccine administration. Uh, so it's just, it's a moral obligation to do something. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do something like actually meaningful. Yeah, there's there's a lesson to be learned here. Uh, the, the biggest story is just the tragedy that's happening in India, which I'm going to circle back to in a second. But there's definitely a lesson for us in America to learn, which is India declared victory early on this pandemic. And um, it's been widely reported that people in wide swaths of India just stopped wearing masks and were, you know, congregating in huge groups, including some critical religious pilgrimages that have happened over the past few months. And, and political rallies, by the and way. And political rallies, yeah. Yeah, political rallies. Which answers and, the question a little bit as to why did they declare victory early? Yeah, and and I and I want to give the government a little bit of grace because the costs I give them a little bit of grace on the economic shutdown because this is a country where people live day to day um, on paychecks at even a more extreme level than people that we have a ton of sympathy here in America. Um, and the, the shutdown last spring, which was done on two hours notice, really wrecked people's lives. And there was unquestionably deaths and extreme hardship because of that. And, and it was a necessary evil. But I, I understand the instinct of the government not to want to shut down uh, too quickly on this, but there is no excuse for the rallies. There's no excuse for allowing huge pilgrimages and, and mass gatherings, and there is no excuse for not being strict on masks. And the country is now paying the price. They went from thinking that this thing was completely behind them to now living the worst nightmare all of us had about what COVID could have been. Right when we last spring, when we were imagining what the worst version of this is, millions upon millions of people getting it daily, exponential growth. That's what's happening in India right now. And there, there's almost no worse place on the planet for this to be happening. The infrastructure is just not there to handle this. Uh, and so I'm really worried. You know, I'm worried as somebody who's a human being, um, who is just moved by the suffering. 
but I'm also moved to somebody who, you know, like that's, that's where my family's from. And, you know, just take one state of India, Uttar Pradesh, which is where my family's from, has more people living in extreme poverty than in all of America combined, just one state. They just don't have an infrastructure now. And so it's not only just the people who get COVID, but anybody who gets any other illness now is not able to access the healthcare system. We got people dying in the streets, dying in the back of rickshaws. It's just unbelievable. It's unfathomable. And, and it's, it's unclear what exactly we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it just comes down to it is uh, a moment when you, you need that old fashioned international coalition to uh, to come together. And sadly, uh, too often over the last I don't know, generation, that sort of coalition, particularly when led by the United States, has only been marshaled to invade a country or to go to war. And, and that's the sort of footing that, that we need to be on in order to be helpful here. Right. Yeah. And it's a little bit complicated with India because they have such strong infrastructure locally for vaccine manufacturing, although it does seem like they're they're now uh, accepting and calling for imports of the vaccine. And it looks like the U.S. Uh, is going to chip in. But one thing that was embarrassing to read is that up until this point, uh, the U.S. has accounted for 27 percent of vaccine production worldwide, but zero percent of global supply beyond our borders, whereas China uh, makes up 33% of the global supply and exports 62% of that. Now, obviously, not all of those exports are for, you know, altruistic reasons. But it is embarrassing to think of the greatest country in the world right now being this isolated and insular. It almost makes you think that we're kind of emerging from like a World War One, post-World War One era isolationism in America. And that that prompts me to ask about a bigger question, which is, where does the Biden administration take us foreign policy wise from here? What 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 can we glean so far from what they've done, what they've announced, what they've signaled, both on COVID and, and other important items? And what do we think this legacy is going to be when we look back on it in terms of the way that he, he represents the United States and its power around the world? And I know we're going to get into some of the more specific examples in a second, but what stands out to me is when you look at the fact that you know, we are about to step up and do quite a lot on the on the vaccine front, on the therapeutics front, on, on COVID diplomacy, uh, combined with some of the other steps uh, that the Biden uh, administration is taking. It actually reminds me a lot of the domestic agenda in the sense that it is, and I think a lot of people see it as, oh, we're getting back to normal. And there's some truth to that. Like we're getting back to normal in the sense that we are acting like a world leader. We're acting like the superpower that we are. But what I think is so similar and and so like Biden specific about this is it's leading with confidence, but not with a swagger. You know, it, it's it's sort of like stepping up and being like, we're going to do what needs to be done. And we're going to act like we've been here before. And we're not going to spend a bunch of time trying to tell everybody how amazing we're being to them. So and that's obviously a lot different um, from his predecessor. But if you look at what he's doing, you know, domestically, I mean, he's put his head down and he's doing the job and he's doing the job so well that people are not thinking about Joe Biden every day because things are going well in a lot of respects. And, and I feel a lot like that's what's happening internationally. It's it's we're going to do what obviously needs to be done and take the steps that need to be taken. And we're not going to make a big deal out of it. You know, secretly, he's had a super consequential foreign policy presidency so far. So yeah. he's ended the Afghanistan war. 
Uh, he's come back to the table on the Iranian deal. He's announced sanctions on Russia. He uh, acknowledged the Armenian genocide, and he's negotiating this international tax treaty, which secretly could be really huge. That's just a couple of items. Never mind how he's just signaled support for alliances like NATO that were in peril under the Trump administration. It reminds me a little bit of of the post George W. Bush, you know, the 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 hundred plus days after that, when just the different tone of the United States mattered a lot. Except, I would say that there's way more substance. You know, I worked in foreign policy during those initial years uh, of the Obama administration at the UN. So I felt it. But I have to say, the substance behind what we were doing wasn't as significant. The change in substance wasn't as big as the change in substance with Biden. You know, this this gets to something we've talked about in previous weeks, which is for those of us who served in the Obama administration, this is like a third term in many ways, but the more effective term. Like there's this is almost unchained. Like this is saying, like, look, like we now know what we're dealing with domestically in terms of the lack of good faith on the other side. We also know that we can't count on having this kind of power uh, for very long, so we must move fast. And it's it's inspiring to watch, just to see people just doing what they think is right and not worrying too much about the perception of Beltway um, insiders and just doing doing good for the American people and people around the world. It's interesting because I think people want to compare apples to apples as if you can just measure the effectiveness of one versus the other. But to use a overly specific baseball analogy, it's like this is why teams, you know, pull their starting pitcher for the third or fourth time through the order because it's like you know much more about the about the other side if you're the batter. Like if it's your third or fourth at bat, like you know what the pitches look like, and so you have an advantage. And, and the Biden administration has that advantage. They, they saw the entire, were part of, you know, the entire Obama administration know what, what's coming from the other side. So they're not going to swing at the bad pitches. They're not going to mess with that. They're going to look for their pitch. And, and, you know, kudos to them for realizing that and operating that way. Well, speaking of learning lessons, the For the People Act, you know, we've been talking about this for the past few months. We want to give listeners an update on where the bill stands right now. There have been a few uh, not so reassuring developments over the past few weeks. So on Sunday, Senator Schumer says that he believes that the deadline for passing the bill is probably August, which seems a bit late based on what we know. And then Manchin gave an interview to Vox yesterday in which he once again threw cold water on the idea of passing this with, uh, with an exception of the filibuster. He said, quote, how in the world could you, with the tension we have right now, allow a voting bill to restructure the voting of America on a partisan line? He asked, and he said that this would guarantee anarchy. Basically said he he needs Republican votes for this. I just am so dumbfounded by the fact that he doesn't understand, like, he's not acknowledging that all across this country there are party line votes stripping Americans of the right to vote, partisan gerrymandering that's making people's votes irrelevant. And that, like, we don't have the luxury to think about this as some kind of bipartisan bill. There's unquestionably bad faith on the other side, and this is permanent damage to our democracy if we let it go. Let it go through. Jason, you wrote an op-ed about this in the KC Star, I think, just the past few days, right? What are what are our chances right now? Can you give us a little bit of reason to hope here? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it, the reason to hope is is that like, what other choice do you have? 
um <laughs> at the end of the day it's like this is this is the ball game now it's not the it's not the ball game in the sense that if you don't get it done right now then that's it it's over forever i mean we're going to have some elections in 22 we're going to elect some more people we're going to you know we're going to keep fighting for this no matter what but yeah in terms of like the elections in 22 having those done in a more just way not having those be subject to a bunch of you know bs laws that are passed by state legislatures across the country yeah i mean this is the ball game so uh, you know, I don't have some specific insight knowledge about, you know, Joe Manchin is playing three-dimensional backgammon or something, but I I do think that you got to continue to press and you got to continue to find a way regardless because this is short-term, this is the ball game, and if we have to go long-term, long-term, this will be the ball game. This is the whole deal. This is not an education bill. It's not a tax bill. It's not a healthcare bill. It's the whole idea of, like, whether America is going to continue to be a democracy. Well, uh, one person who gives us reason to hope, um, friend of the pod and friend to democracy, Stacey Abrams, uh, was at a hearing in the Senate and was asked by Senator Kennedy of Louisiana what provisions specifically in the Georgia bill she took issue with. And let's listen to a little bit of that audio, and I would love to get your reaction. You're against the Georgia bill, I gather. Is that right? I'm against certain provisions of it, yes. Okay, and I think you've called it a racist bill, am I right? I think there are provisions of it that are racist, yes. Okay, tell me specifically, just give me a list of the provisions that you objected. I object to the provisions that remove access to the right to vote, that shorten the federal runoff period from nine weeks to four weeks, okay. that restrict the time that a voter can request and return an absentee ballot application, Slow, slow down for me because our, our audio is not real good here. It bans nearly all out-of-precinct votes. Bans what? I'm sorry? Bans nearly all out-of-precinct votes. Is that everything? It, no, it is not. <laughs> no, sir. It restricts the hours of operation because it now... So here's what I love about this clip. I think a lot of people assume uh, that politicians are always really prepared uh, for the topics they're going to discuss. I mean, it's not a terrible assumption to make, right? Because this is what these people do for a living. Like, you know, you generally assume that as a lawyer goes into court, they're pretty familiar with the facts that they're going to deal with, or that, you know, as a doctor walks in to see a patient, that they've at least breezed through the chart on the way through the door, right? Like, these are assumptions that we make about people in, in various professions. The truth is, a lot of politicians are winging it a lot of the time, right? And other politicians know that, and they tend to assume that other people are winging it. So when, you know, Senator Kennedy looks at Stacey Abrams, he sees another politician and he thinks, oh, you're just doing your formulaic, I'm going to complain about voting rights issues because that's my brand. And you don't really, you can't really get into the details of this. And that is a failure to understand who Stacey Abrams is. Like, I, I've, I've, I've worked with Stacey on a lot of things. Stacey is always the most prepared person in the room. She's always the, like she, by a factor of two or three, like she knows her stuff and she knows your stuff. And I mean, Stacy is a brilliant person. So it was just a dumb question. Like he asked this question and Stacy's not looking down at any notes. She's just like, oh, I'll tell you exactly what's wrong with this thing. And uh, it just goes to show you that, you know, if you work in politics, if you work in anything, don't underestimate how far it will take you if you will just prepare harder and longer than other people. And the lesson here for our listeners is that 
while we often talk about the importance of making emotional appeals and we de-emphasize the importance of facts, there is a credibility factor in being the person in a conversation who clearly has a mastery of the facts. So when you are talking to your relatives or your friends and you're able to bring up information that they had never heard before, but that is compelling, uh, well, there's obviously credibility in that. And I think that's the thing uh, to take away from this. You know, it's just funny that Senator Kennedy, he just, he immediately realized he had done Oops. the thing that you as a trial lawyer uh, <laughs> know not to do, which is ask a question where you're not quite sure what the answer is going to be, you know? Like, I especially, think in his head- Especially of an adversarial witness. I'm like wondering what he was thinking. Like, do you think Stacey Abrams, who's devoted her life to this uh, and who's- obviously incredibly gifted uh, and passionate about this is going to show up to a hearing and not be able to answer that question is crazy to me. He won't, he will not make that mistake again with Stacey Abrams. I don't think. I agree. So I started using Headspace a few years ago, and it's been really interesting to watch the platform grow over time to the point where now when there's something specific that I want to meditate about or want to deal with, I actually think to myself, you know, I bet Headspace has something specifically for this. And this week, you know, I'm getting ready to turn 40, thinking about my mortality a little bit. And I went into Headspace and they have a whole series of meditations on acceptance. And so I've been meditating on acceptance, thanks to Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy to use app. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com m54. That's headspace.com m54 for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com m54 today. Well, Jason, I tagged you on a post on Instagram last week because we were both doing this workout called the Murph. And you might have noticed what kind of socks I was wearing. This is the video where you were doing pull-ups on a streetlight in New York City, like Rocky Four, right? Yeah, that's why I mentioned this is I wanted I wanted the recognition of that. I just want people to know the the quality content that they can get and that they can see the Bombas socks. They can see the Bombas socks. I have all these cool workout socks I ordered from Bombas, and they're super comfortable, but they're also like super stylish. Like I'm getting compliments left and right about my socks, which is something I never thought I'd be able to say. Bombas performance socks are stitched with special moisture wicking yarn, temperature regulating vents in socks, people, that allow cool airflow in and prevent overheating. You may think that I'm describing like the cockpit of a space shuttle. I'm describing socks, people. Plus, for every pair of Bombas performance socks you buy, they donate a pair to someone in need. And if you're searching for the perfect thing for mom, the Bombas Mother's Day collection has comfy gifts like colorful wild wear socks, ready to gift sock gift boxes, and performance sock gift bags. Go to bombas.com slash majority54 today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S, bombas.com slash majority54 for 20% off, bombas.com slash majority54. All right. And this week in misinformation, we're going to talk about uh, the topic of systemic racism. And we're going to start with a voicemail from one of our listeners. OMG, you guys are the dynamic duo of podcasts. Uh, this is Jen. 
I live in New Hampshire. My governor is currently saying literally the words, there's no systemic racism in New Hampshire. Total BS, of course. Um, and I've also recently dealt with someone who is equally in denial about the existence of systemic racism. Um, I am curious to hear about approaches for folks that are at that level of denial. They may acknowledge implicit bias. I think they're trying to make it like it's a personal what's happening in your heart thing, not a systemic thing. Um, but uh, I'd love some advice about how to deal with that issue. Thank you. You know, what this makes me think of is conversations I've had with friends who say, well, look, I'm not racist. I, I don't see any I don't see any reason to treat people differently. I don't personally have this animus. So why is it that, you know, you're telling me that I'm doing something wrong? And I, I think that the response to that is to focus not on people's individual feelings, but to talk to them about the ways in which they benefit from the system as it exists. And I had a conversation like this with a, with a friend recently where the question I asked that I began with is I asked them, how often do you think about being white? Like in how many situations in a given day are you really aware of your whiteness? Uh, and obviously the answer is, well, no, I don't think about it. And they said, I don't think about it because I also don't think about other people being black. And I said, yeah, okay. But I promise you that Folks who are not white are forced to think about it all the time. Uh, that's what it is to be a minority. Even if you don't, even if you put aside all of the, you know, systemic parts of this, there is automatically a, a, an ever prevalent race conscious part of of living in America. Because then the follow up question I ask is, do you remember the last time that you were the only white person in the room? And they always do, right? And I say, okay, now imagine that happened every single day. And, I, and they'll say, but it wasn't a big deal. I'll say, yeah, okay, it wasn't a big deal, but you remember it. It stood out to you. You felt a little different. And so I try to start there just to build some foundation for the conversation. Yeah, this, you know, you made me think of something, you know, I think it was a week or two ago, I was sitting outside at a diner uh, in Manhattan and I had this flashback to when I was a kid and was my dad was still around we went to a diner in Manhattan. It was the first time I remember being in like a setting like that in Manhattan. And so it kind of brought me back to this moment. And I remember thinking, uh, I'm in this, remember this feeling of being out in public with my father, who's very Indian um, and being ashamed, like I was like ashamed and like embarrassed to be like, people were kind of looking at us. And, and I had that feeling again for the first time in a long time when I was sitting there for some strange reason, I was just thinking about that. And and I, it made me think of just like what people face. You know, I I thankfully don't get that feeling a lot anymore, but it made me think of people who who do live in uh, parts of this country or or you know potentially our whole country where they're you're just treated that way. Like no matter where you walk in, the eyes are on you. It it it's sometimes is even out of malice, but people look at you differently. They treat you differently. They suspect you right away. Of certain things and so on a just an interpersonal level it's stifling but then you think of it on the macro level right like what what is the experience of black americans latino americans uh and this gets to something we talked to with my brother who was like when we pushed my brother in the podcast where we interviewed my brother uh for listeners who didn't listen to that and my brother who's a uh republican he said he basically you know wants to treat people as individuals 
not as their racial category. But he also said in the same conversation, interestingly, that he felt like Asians, uh, Asian Americans were not represented within power structures in this country, which I found interesting, which is he wants people treated as individuals, but he also notices when the category from which he's a part isn't represented within power structures. And I think to myself, well, let's look at the experience of Black America. They're 12% of the country's population, 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs, 3% of the U.S. Senate, 0% of governors, and they receive less than 1% of venture capital. So even beyond that interpersonal experience, we have a problem in this country, uh, and it's not a mystery. You know, this country perpetrated slavery for hundreds of years and then slow-rolled civil rights, fought it every step of the way, and this is the predictable result of that. And to get to what I said to my brother in that podcast, like it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility, right? Not my quote, but I heard that somewhere and I, I think about it every day. Like Whether you're responsible for that, those numbers or not, we're Americans and we want this country to be as inclusive and equitable as possible. And we should play a part in fixing that. It, that's a good segue into the next clip that we want to uh, tackle for this, which is, you know, Lindsey Graham uh, answering a question about whether or not there's systemic racism in this country, because I think a lot of what our listeners are dealing with are people citing examples of success by people who are not white and saying, look, this is taken care of. Senator, is there systemic racism in this country in policing? and in other institutions? Uh, no, not in my opinion. We just elected a two-term African-American president. The vice president is of African-American Indian descent. So our systems are not racist. America is not a racist country. Within every society, you have bad actors. So I hear this all the time uh, where people will say, yeah, but I had a boss who was black or I had, a, you know, whatever. And I think the key to this, and particularly for our caller, I think the key here is one, you got to point out, yeah, if, if you are citing exceptions, uh, then that probably means that it is an exception to the norm. Like if you're pointing to specific things, because nobody's like mentioning, you know, the fact that every other president and every other vice president has been a white dude. Like nobody's like, so therefore, uh, white folks are in no way discriminated, you know, I mean, because a lot of the time when you're having this conversation, people are saying, actually, it's, you know, white males who are being discriminated against. So there's that, obviously. But I think what's more important is to take the conversation away from that big picture stuff and take it to stuff in your everyday life and in your community that you share with this person and point it out. Because systemic racism is really about the stuff that you don't think of as racist, the stuff that is there that they may not realize is there. So I'll give you an example. I had a conversation like this recently in Kansas City, and I pointed out that Kansas City is very proud of its streetcar, which runs you know, basically from downtown down to the plaza, and it's, it's, it's free, and it's a, it's a really cool amenity that the city has put in place with a lot of federal dollars and with a very specific uh, community development tax put on uh, businesses in that area. It's an awesome tourist attraction. We're really proud of it. It's been written up in the New York Times. It's very cool. Uh, it's public transportation is what it is, right? We also have a bus system, a pretty good bus system. We are now finally going to uh, make that bus system uh, free. We're making all public transit in Kansas City free. That's awesome. But, but up until that point, when we did that, and we'll be, I think, the first city in the country to do that. But up until that point, well, you got a huge difference here, right? Because the main 
public transportation that's used by white folks on the west side, which is the white side of Kansas City, is a streetcar. They use it when they go out, when they go downtown, you know, like in non-COVID times, and they go party. And then, you know, the black part of Kansas City, the, the east side of Kansas City, they're the ones who are most likely to use the bus, right? So when you look at that, you go, oh, white people, public transportation was free. Black folks, their public transportation cost money. And so I, I mentioned that to somebody in a conversation recently, and I was like, that's systemic racism, man. And, and I was like, and you didn't notice it because it didn't affect you or because maybe you can afford the bus when you take it or whatever. But I was like, it's the stuff you don't see and that we don't even think of from a racial perspective, but it affects people from one. Right. You know, I'm just, I'm blown away by uh, Lindsey Graham. You know, he, <laughs> he, he talks about the, the fact that they're, they're two, you know, Kamala Harris and Barack Obama just skirting over the fact that he supported Donald Trump, who said Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States before he ran for president. Um, so this wasn't like some, you know, accident that happened after Lindsey Graham supported him. And, you know, as I talked about before, you know, 3% of the body that Lindsey Graham serves in is black compared to 12% of the US population. But I agree with you, you look at resources, you look at opportunity in this country. You know, I think a lot of people will acknowledge the most people will acknowledge the horrors of slavery, may even acknowledge that Reconstruction was a disaster. But they probably think of the New Deal and have warm and fuzzy feelings about it, not realizing that the the move to the suburbs and the financing that was available to people uh, to move into their homes or the GI Bill or jobs, you know, in public works, all these things were either closed off or severely restricted to black Americans. And then you look at representation post-slavery, where it spiked very quickly for black Americans. And then you had, you know, systemic violence going on for about a century, preventing black Americans from participating, where you saw the franchise dip down. These are not small things. That's the the legacy of that is the three percent in the U.S. Senate and zero percent of governors, and it's, you know, at the very least, I would love for people to say, all right, let me put my back into preventing us from perpetrating uh, those types of crimes today through these act these voting restrictions, right? Like maybe maybe you're not comfortable yet with a, a more progressive tax code, but you know, put a little bit of energy into to having your party not be the party continuing to disenfranchise voters. I, you know, I, I've mentioned this uh, example on the show in the past, I think, but I just really like it. So I'll go back to it. It's from a speech that uh, I attended back in college that, that uh, Jesse Jackson gave. Um, and it, it, to me, is the way if you want to try and talk with a person who's saying there's no systemic racism, if you want to try to talk to them about the effect of slavery on you know, modern America and, and, and on uh, the posture economically of, of Black America, I think the way to do it is because people are going to say, look, that was so long ago. Like, why is that still an issue? And, and you got to talk about it from a generational wealth perspective and, and the idea of, of generations having a head start on accumulating wealth. And, and Jesse Jackson, he didn't really even get into that. He just came to my school uh, back in college and he said, look, let's talk about affirmative action. Let's explain what it is. He said, this is a nice school. You either get a lot of aid or your family has money if you go here. And he was like, here's why, here's what affirmative action is. He said, you white kids that go here, who your parents pay for it, he's like, it's because your family has wealth. If your parents fall in hard times, your grandparents will probably help out. He was like, 
the black kids who are here, whose family pays for it, uh, you know, who completely pays for that aid. He's like, if your parents fall on hard times, you probably are going to a different school. He's like, right. that's the difference between having money and having wealth. And it's, it's what it, it's when generations accumulate wealth over time and put the next generation in a position to do that. That's why it matters that if you go back a few generations, you have people who had to work for free. The numbers are staggering. Since the 80s, uh, aggregate white wealth in this country has grown from $20 trillion to $100 trillion. At the same time, for Black Americans, it started in the late 80s at $6 trillion and is at $6 trillion. So it's, it's lower uh, by orders of magnitude than even where white families were in the 80s. And white families saw a five-time increase since then while it's remained stagnant for Blacks. This is, this is a crisis, and it's, it's just... It's it's morally unacceptable. Here's why that statistic is so important and how people ought to use it, which is, and it it means being a little adversarial with the person you're talking to. It, it's it's you you cite that statistic and you say, okay, now, is that the fault of every Black American, or is it possible that there is a system that is making that stay the way it is, and while the white uh, number goes up, because if that's the case, if that's the question you're asking. There's only one acceptable answer. Either there's a system that's creating that, or you are a person who probably in this conversation has said, look, I'm not racist. Your only other option is a racist answer, is to say something that is basically a, a, a soft way of saying that Black people aren't trying hard enough or they're not working hard enough. There's no way to answer that statistic with, you know, honestly and in a not racist way without acknowledging that there is a system that's perpetuating that problem. All right. Well, we're going to keep coming back to this subject. Obviously, this is not a small issue, uh, but I want to thank our listeners for sending in voicemails. For those of you who want to send in more voicemails, uh, we're at 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. We'd love to hear from you. We have an award to give out this week because our producer, Grace, given it's my birthday, is giving me the luxury. I, I love these awards that we used to give out. So um, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll continue to give out some in the in the uh, months ahead it's my opportunity to be petty every now and then and we have a good one this week jason wayne lapierre who i think was not anymore maybe not anymore with the nra but was the head of the nra we're going to give him what we call the ben shapiro fantasy soldier award named after ben for that that book that we talked about a couple weeks ago where he reimagines himself as some kind of returning war hero or something. I can't remember exactly what the context was, but something he's not. Uh, well, let's be and, clear. Ben Shapiro is not our fantasy anything. This is a reference yeah. <laughs> to, ben, to Ben having a, a fantasy uh, about being a soldier. And uh, and yeah, so it, it's this video uh, of uh, Millionaire LaPierre, my old buddy who came to the state of Missouri and flew all over the state in his private plane and said nasty things about me, uh, who you're right, is the former head of the NRA. I'm pretty sure because it turns out he was stealing a bunch of money. We'll fact check that so I don't get sued. But uh, anyway. Yeah, potentially uh, allegedly, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Was, we don't know where that stands, but yeah. Maybe it was alleged. Yeah. Oh, now we're good. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so in the video, he's elephant hunting, which just a quick digression here. Um, you know, I, I went hunting like once as a kid. I went bird hunting, um, but I... And I don't have a problem with hunting at all. Like I have a lot of really good friends who hunt. Um, I guess what I kind of have a problem with is hunting for no reason. 
I, I was raised like my dad was a cop and he had guns and like I, I was raised shooting guns like a lot of kids in the in the Midwest like I was really really young when I when I shot a gun for the first time and had spent a lot of time around guns before I went in the army so it's not like an anti-gun thing and it's not even an anti-hunting thing but I remember my dad saying to me once the reason he didn't hunt is he was like yeah you know I mean that stuff can't shoot back it do, you know it doesn't seem to him it wasn't as exciting uh, and so I, when I think about uh, hunting elephants, which I'm not aware of anyone eating elephant meat. Um, I'm not aware of, I mean, maybe there are some clothes that are made from elephant hide. If so, it, very unnecessarily. But the only thing I'm aware of with elephant hunting are the, the gruesome pictures of people cutting off the tail or the trunk, which is in this video, by the way, of, uh, of uh, good old Wayne Lapierre and his wife. Um, so it just as an aside, like it's, just kind of gross um, to do in the first place. But if you watch the video, he's out there and they're shooting, at, they have these guides and they're, they're shooting at this elephant. The elephant goes down, they come up on the elephant. The elephant is clearly suffering. It is slowly dying, it, it's, it's on the ground, but it's not dead. Now, by the way, the guides all have elephant guns, which elephant guns are you know uh, powerful enough to go through the hide of an elephant. You know, he's using some sort of high-powered rifle, but not so high-powered that it would go through the hide in any spot. So clearly there's a particular spot on the elephant that he is supposed to hit, probably behind the ear or something like that. Some sort of headshot, I, I imagine. Just hold your rifle. I'm going to tell you where. Just hold it up. Don't wait. I'm going to point for you where to shoot. Come forward. Now sit on your... Yeah, there where I showed you. Now I'll shoot him. Same spot? Yes. He, he didn't hit that spot. And so they're like within a few feet of the elephant and the guide is trying to explain to him where to hit. The guide walks up to the elephant and points, like stands next to this dying elephant and is like, shoot it here, like with his, like where his finger is. And then he walks away and then uh, LaPierre fires. And then there's this whole exchange of like the guy going like, where did you shoot? I'm not sure where you're shooting. Where are you telling me to shoot? This is a few feet away. And by the way, there's a scope on his rifle, okay? Like the head of the NRA. And meanwhile, like, yeah, like I could make fun of him for being obviously a lousy marksman, but really like, what a jerk, man. Like this elephant is dying and you're just trying to get a video of you making this second shot from a few feet away with a scope. Like be a decent human and turn to the guide with the elephant gun and go, hey, um, maybe I'll work on my marksmanship another time. Can you go please put this elephant out of its misery? But that never happens in the video. So it's just really gross and, uh, you know, exposes uh, Wayne LaPierre for being the thief with poor aim that he clearly is. It's disgusting. I don't have much to add to that. It's just gross. Quarantine Corner. We haven't checked it in a while, Jason. One area I wanted to explore is you and I... We became close because we, we were involved in this fitness community together, uh, which we paused uh, at the beginning of COVID. And then we which, just rebooted it. Which you it. started. I did. Yeah, I did. It's, you know, basically for a bunch of my friends uh, across the country, it's our way of just following the same kind of nutrition, fitness, wellness uh, regimen. And we kind of track the same things and motivate each other, et cetera. And some people have seen some huge progress because of this. Uh, and I paused it at the beginning of COVID, but I brought it back because a lot of people in the group have struggled to stay fit during COVID and really want that community again. And so we just rebooted it two weeks ago. 
Uh, and so I figure it's a good way to check in just on like, you know, what that experience has been like. And I think I'll start by just saying, you know, one thing we added to the, this community that we didn't have before is screen time, which not everybody uses screen time. Some people do meditation, but I track my screen time now. And I've gone down about 50% over the past two weeks. And it just is like a reminder now that I, you know, that extra couple hours a day and, you know, many, many hours a week, it makes a huge difference. Like, you know, we're, we're addicted to these damn phones. And so um, it's once you look at that number for the, our listeners, you don't look at that number. If you have an iPhone, you could check it pretty easily. I really recommend looking at that number every single day. Uh, it's kind of horrifying how much time we spend on our phones. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to cut down on screen time that uh, Diana and I, Diana is also um, part of this uh, fitness community. Diana lobbied Ravi successfully to uh, allow for an option of having meditation instead of screen time, which we will be taking advantage of. Uh, but I want to, I actually want to take this opportunity since it is your birthday, Ravi, to fill people in a little bit on what it's like to be friends with Ravi. So, you know, <laughs> and, and, and this is a good thing. Like, uh, here's the things that are happening in my life right now that would not be happening if I was not friends with Ravi, the way Ravi impacts the people around him. So one, um, you know, I, I do things like count my steps that I wasn't doing before. My, my fitness, I was already like really on the fitness train, but it's like at a next level, my fitness and nutrition stuff because I'm friends with Ravi because he started this group and, and the accountability that it brings with it. Next to that, Ravi and I are working on a political TV show. Like we're writing up the, a pilot for a political TV show, uh, which is something that I never would have thought to do, but Ravi invited me to do that with him. So that's a thing. Like I'm working on writing a TV show with Ravi and I never would have been doing that otherwise. And then the last one is I would not have restarted Majority 54 if I didn't have Ravi to do that with because it was just, it was too overwhelming to me to get it going again uh, without a co-host who would do a lot of work. So, uh, you know, it's your birthday. Props to you, man. Uh, I won't say too much about it yet because it could change pretty dramatically. We're in the middle of writing the pilot. But the the funny part about writing this show is that the main character has become, in, in many ways, a hybrid between the two of us. He's like a half Indian state legislator from the South. And so it's really funny. Actually, as a, this morning, I was writing a little bit of it, and I was kind of cataloging. I was like, all right, like get clear in your head what parts of the two of you guys and what like what part of somebody that's not the two of you is this person because i think like some days i sit down and i think of you some days i think of me some days i think of some hypothetical third person and it's like i really got to get that right that's just a good reminder for me. we had a long conversation about whether to make this guy's backstory that he was a soldier with ptsd and we, we yes. decided against it but like <laughs> yeah yeah he's really an amalgam yeah so at least one thing we know for sure is that if nobody else watches the show majority 54 listeners may be interested yeah that's gonna have to go in the pitch well for grab and or coming back to the crisis happening in india there are many great organizations doing great work in india to try to make a difference in on in this crisis but one uh, is called care india and you go to careindia.org and they've been donating PPE kits and masks and other supplies, and they've been working in India for over 70 years. And so if you got the means, go there and chip in. All right. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you know, I was thinking, what's the content there? Um, True's really into rollerblades right now, and he's got his mom rollerblading as well, and he's very concerned about her going too fast. So if that's your thing, my Instagram is the place for you. Ravi is you know, surfing indoors 
and uh, getting a lot of birthday props from people. And that's at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Wait, really quickly, Robbie, I feel like you didn't revel in Wayne LaPierre nearly enough. I, I just... Yeah, I got a little I, dark with it. I couldn't, I couldn't get into the, the pettiness of it all, thinking about the, the image of it all. I just wanted to give you an out because I didn't want to deprive you of this award. No, moment. but that's why he's such an asshole. It's like, there's nothing funny about it, actually. Yeah. It's an evil act, you know? I think what's yeah. funny about it is that they filmed it thinking it would be awesome. And then they're like, we're not using this. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like ha- it's like half of our audio from Majority 54. We- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before you go, I'd love to tell you about another podcast you may like. Life Jolt from CBC Podcasts examines the lives of women navigating Canada's correction system. Host Rosemary Green, who spent five years in prison herself, guides listeners through tough issues like solitary confinement and the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canadian prisons. The series gives us unprecedented access to the inmates who call the Grand Valley Institution for Women, a federal penitentiary, home, and examines the resiliency and potential of women who have survived prison. Find Life Jolt everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.